All right, let's open our Bibles to Genesis. So we're going through a series called The Gospel in Genesis. And I told you when we began this, we were going to kind of not, uh, try not to get bogged down, but it may seem like we've kind of spent a long time on Abraham. But Abraham is just such a, an incredible figure in the Scripture. And when we talk about, um, as we go through all the Scripture, but as we are going through Genesis, we're looking for the message of the gospel in the, the characters and the events that are recorded for us in the Scripture. And so we've come to Abraham, and um, Abraham is such a central figure, such a central character in our in our faith, in, in understanding uh, how God works and how he deals uh, with men. And in Abraham and in all that's surrounding him, we see so many beautiful, graphic, detailed pictures of Christ and the cross and the gospel and how God is bringing about his plan and purpose through history. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look briefly at Genesis chapter 20, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, in Genesis chapter 21. And I'm not going to go into chapter 22 because I want to spend, um, I, you could spend a lot of time. That's, that's where we get to the part of Abraham's life where Isaac is born, and Isaac is... Um, is anywhere probably from, you know, 13 to 30 years old. No one really knows how old Isaac was when Abraham took Isaac up onto the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. So we're not going to get to that today. That's going to come next week. So we're going to look at everything leading up to that in chapters 20 and 21. But I want to remind you of something before we get into uh, reading the scripture here. So as we go through the scriptures and we see the foreshadowing of Christ in, in the pictures that are presented uh, to us in the events that are recorded in the scripture, in uh, the Bible's full of these, I want you to understand that these are not given to us simply as examples of how to live more morally excellent lives. In other words, God has not recorded all of these stories just to help us become better people. That's really not the point of why this is in the Bible. Now, does God want us to become better people? Yes, and if, if we can say it in that way, we can't make ourselves better people. You do understand that, right? That's impossible for us to do. Try as you might, you cannot become a better person in and of yourself. You can take all the lessons of the Bible, apply them to your life, and become a very moral person, a very morally upright person. And you might say, well, that's, that's good, isn't it, Pastor Jeff? Yeah, that's good, but that's not, go that's not good enough. Because I don't care how morally upright you become on this earth, you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot become so morally upright that God says now you can enter into heaven. Now you can have eternal life because you finally became morally upright enough for me to give you eternal life. That's not how it works. And I know you understand this. But, but it's very easy for us to fall into this trap that we read the scriptures and we're just seeing moral lessons. 
and we take the events and the people and we apply the moral lesson to our life. And what I'm saying to you is that really is not ultimately why the scripture was given to us. Well, why was the scripture given to us then? Why did God record these people and these events in in the Bible? Well, these are recorded for us because they inform us of what is to come and what has come in Christ. So why why do we look for Christ in Abraham and why do we look for the gospel and all of the things surrounding him or in Noah and the flood or in this creation story with Adam and Eve? Because that's why God put it there. That's why God created these people. That's why God caused the events of these people's lives to unfold the way they did because God all along has been pointing us showing us Christ who is to come. Now, we live on the other side of the cross. Christ has come. So we're not looking forward to a Christ who is yet to come, though he is going to come again. But the Christ that's going to come again has already come. We now are on the other side of the cross, and we see what has come now in Christ. So Abraham was looking ahead to something that would come And he saw it, the Bible says, by faith. We are now living in the reality of what has come. We don't have to just see it by faith. We experience it by faith. Because Christ has truly come. And he has truly brought his kingdom to this earth. And he has truly, in in reality, accomplished a victory and has done something that literally has changed the world. That is the reality of where we live right now. When Abraham was walking the earth and all of these things were happening, and as Moses recorded these events through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he recorded them for us today, He recorded these events because even Moses, as he's writing the scripture, Moses is looking by faith to what God is showing him is to come in Christ. And so this is the point of the scripture. The Bible and all that God is doing is not ultimately about us. It is about God. It is about his glory. God in his grace has created us for his glory and brought us into his love through faith in Jesus Christ. So we could sum it up like this. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. The Bible is not the, the, the key or the formula that tells us how to unlock the mystery so that we could get God to do things for us. That's not what the scripture is about. The scripture reveals a God who created everything out of nothing and he did it all for himself and he has by grace brought us into this reality and as a gift of grace has given us life in his son and he's done that chiefly and ultimately for his glory. But in doing that and in bringing us into that reality, guess what? We benefit 
There is no greater gift. There is no greater joy. There is no greater fulfillment that we could ever possibly attain than that which God has for us in Jesus Christ. And this is what God is revealing to us as we go through the scripture. This is what he was showing Moses. This is what he was showing the children of Israel. This is what he is revealing to us and showing us. And he does that not just so that we can have up here in our head lots of examples of how the Bible speaks of Christ, but he does this because he wants something to happen in our hearts. He wants there to be a true experiencing of Christ in our heart and in our life. And that experiential reality of Christ in us, it must change us. It must transform us. We can have Christ up here all day long and it won't do anything but affect maybe our opinions and the way we think about things. But when Christ becomes a reality here, the Bible calls it being born again. There is a real transformation, a real change that takes place. Abraham saw that by faith. We live in the reality of it now because Christ, when he hung on the cross, uttered these words, it is finished. We don't have to look for and hope for a finished work one day. We live now in the reality of a finished work. And as we look at Abraham and these events that surround his life, this is what God wants you to see, not just with your eyes here, not just with your mind here, but he wants you to see it in your heart. He wants you to know it in your heart, the reality of a finished work, the reality of what Christ has done because Christ has come. Amen? So let's read. Let's go to Genesis chapter 20. I'm going to read the first six verses of Genesis chapter 20. There's really one thought I want to communicate from this chapter. So Genesis 20 verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Father, we just ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, God, open our hearts and open our minds and reveal to us the word of truth, illuminate, bring this word alive to us and reveal in us Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Father, we ask that you would do this, that you would powerfully transform us and conform us to the Son and that you would be glorified 
through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is the second time it's recorded in Scripture that Abraham journeys to a, a foreign land, and he tells the, the people of that land that Sarah is his sister because Abraham was afraid that they would kill him and take Sarah um, because she was married to him. And so he did this again. He comes to Abimelech, and he tells uh, the Philistines here that Sarah is his sister. He kind of, uh, you say, well, he lied. Uh, well, he did, but t to Abraham, it was kind of a technicality. He tells Abimelech later on, well, I really didn't lie to you because she really is my sister in this way that she's related to me by family and by marriage, and, and uh, she's not technically my sister. We don't have the same mother, but, but we are related in a way, and so that's why I said she's my sister. And so uh, Abimelech, thinking that this is Abraham's sister, sees her, she's beautiful to him, and he says, I want this woman. Well, being the king, you know, he, he can do that, right? Because he makes the rules. So he takes Sarah, and he's got Sarah in his house. And uh, we don't have to talk about what his intentions ultimately were, right? Uh, but, but all of a sudden, it just doesn't go well with him. And uh, we see later on, if we re read the rest of the chapter, that God really brought, he closed the womb of ev everyone in his nation and brought sickness upon Abimelech and brought sickness in a, like a plague to this nation. And, and so Abimelech has this dream and God says, um, you've got this man's wife. And if you don't give her back, uh, you're going to die. He goes, whoa, wait a minute. I, I took her in the integrity of my heart. I really thought she was his sister. I didn't mean to sin against you. And God says, and this is what I want you to see. Verse six, and God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That's an amazing scripture to me. Now here's this pagan king and God says I did not let you touch her so Abimelech was withheld from sinning against God so what, what does this teach us what what is this showing us that God is sovereign over all things this speaks to the sovereignty of God God does not condone sin but God is sovereign over sin do you understand what I'm saying God doesn't condone sin, but God is sovereign over sin. Could God have allowed Abimelech to sin against him? Yes, he could. Why did Abimelech not sin against God? God says, I didn't let you sin against me. I withheld you from sinning against me. So God protected Sarah and Abraham to uphold the promise he gave to Abraham of a son and a seed that would cause all the nations of the earth to be blessed. We're going we're to look at this in more detail next week when we get to Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain and, and, and Abraham is ready to sacrifice Isaac, God says, no, okay, now I know you, you really have faith in me as if God didn't know. God knows everything, right? So we read that in the Bible. We don't read that and say, you mean God didn't know? No, God knows everything. But we see that because of Abraham's faith, and this is how God works through us. You realize God could have,
created anything he wanted to create. God could have worked through any means that he would desire to work through, but God created humans and he chose to work through humans and he works through humans through faith. By grace, through faith, we are saved. It is through faith, and we're gonna, we're gonna look at this on Wednesday nights. We're gonna go and be in Hebrews chapter 11 and look at the by faith, all these people, what they did by faith. And Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so here Abraham has been given this promise of a son. He doesn't have a son yet. Well, he has Ishmael, but we're going to look at the scripture. The scripture does not even speak as though Abraham has a son. God doesn't recognize Ishmael as Abraham's son. He does, yet when it comes to the promise, when God speaks about the promise, he tells Abraham, take your only son. Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son. Ishmael was 13 years old when Sarah became pregnant with Isaac. But yet God says to Abraham, take your only son. In terms of the promise, Isaac was the only son. In terms of the promise, God has only one son. You know what his name is? Jesus. He is the only son, the only begotten of the father. And so this, this is the type, these are the pictures that we're seeing here in the scripture. So we see that God says to Abimelech, he said, I withheld you from sinning against me. And God did that because God was preserving, upholding the promise that he made to Abraham. God was not going to allow Abimelech to touch Sarah because Sarah had not produced a child yet. And Sarah would only produce one child, and that would be the child of promise. It was not going to be Abimelech's son. It was going to be Abraham's son, and it was going to be the child of promise that would ultimately bring forth the promised seed who is Christ. Paul reveals all this to us in, in Galatians chapter 3. So though we all sin... There is no doubt that God has also withheld us from sinning against him. Only God knows how many sinful acts he has withheld us from committing while we had no idea God was saving us from our own sinful desires while upholding his purpose. Now, I don't want to do what I just told you not to do. I don't want to take the story and make it an example of how we need to trust God to keep us from committing sin. That if we would just pray harder or love him more, maybe God would keep me from committing sin. That's not the point of this story. God is sovereign over sin. But the point is not how we can figure out a formula of, of getting God to keep me from sinning more than I do. That's not the point of the story here. The point of the story is that we see God above everything. That God is sovereign over sin. There is real sin. There, we commit real sin. Abraham committed real sin. Abimelech committed real sin. We all do because we're human and we're fallen. And sin is the nature we're born with. And that's why we sin. And God allowed us to fall. God allowed Adam to fall. Why? Because God had a plan and a purpose that, that was 
in existence before Adam. Adam was just a part of that. And so God in his grace keeps us from sinning against him really in more ways than we could probably ever imagine or know. What God allows and what God does not allow are always according to his plan and his purpose. You see, God was not just being a nice guy to Abimelech. God didn't look at Abimelech and say, well, poor guy, he, he was deceived. So I'm going to give him a break and, and I'm going to be nice to him. That had no, that's not what that was about. It had nothing to do with Abimelech. It had everything to do with God's plan and God's purpose. God could have just as easily never allowed Abraham to even go into Abimelech's country. He could have avoided that whole situation, but yet God didn't, and it's recorded in the scripture for us. Why? Because God wants us to know right here today that he is sovereign over everything, even sin. And he does everything to bring about, to work, according to his plan and his purpose. Because God doesn't exist for us. We exist for God. We exist for his plan and for his purpose. We do not dictate to God. God is the one who is above everything. So the scripture is full of examples where God works his plan and purpose through the things that he allows as well as through the things that he does not allow. So this is a perfect example of God's plan and purpose where he did not allow Abimelech to sin against him. He withheld Abimelech from sinning against him. Why? Because he would not allow Abimelech's sin to disrupt his plan and his purpose to bring forth the promised seed. But then we look at a story like David. He didn't allow Abimelech to sin against him and disrupt the line of Christ. Yet in God's plan and God's purpose, God allowed David to sin against him and he brought Bathsheba into the very line of Christ. That is, am- is that not amazing to you? If you ever wonder whether the Bible was really written by, uh, inspired by God or written by man, I promise you that men would not put the things that are in the Bible. Men would not have put, uh, the line of the Messiah would not have come through a murdering adulterer. That's what David was. He was a murdering adulterer. He had Bathsheba's husband murdered so that he could take her as his wife. And it was Solomon who was born to Bathsheba and David who Christ came through. Tamar, who was the mother of Judah. I'm sorry. Tamar, who was uh, Judah, was Tamar's uh, father-in-law. And Tamar couldn't get her father-in-law to give his other son because her husband died. And by law, he was obligated to give her a child. 
And that wicked father-in-law would not give his daughter-in-law a child, withheld his son from her, so she had to go and dress up like a harlot and deceive him on the side of the road. And he goes and he has sex with her thinking he's lying with a prostitute. In reality, he's lying with his daughter-in-law because that was the only way she could produce a son. And her son is in the line of the Messiah. Remember what I said last week? God doesn't hide the skeletons in his closet. Listen, if we were just trying to convince people to believe in this holy God who, who is absolutely perfect, we, we wouldn't write a genealogy like that, I promise you. We wouldn't record things like that. We would cover those things up because that's what we do, right? I mean, you think about just in our day and time, think about our political, we're fixing to have a, a, an election in a month. Think about all the political ads you see on TV. You got one, one candidate trying to expose all the skeletons in the closet of the other candidate and the other candidate's trying to cover them all up because we don't want anyone to know about our skeletons. And here is God who writes the scripture and he just lays it all open for us. Why? Why would God allow David to sin against him and cause the line of the Messiah to come through Bathsheba? Because it's a picture of our redemption. Because it's a picture of how God relates to us. Who are we? Are we perfect? No. We're fallen. We're failed. We're broken. We couldn't get it right if our life depended on it. And our life does depend on it. And we still can't get it right. So what does God do? God, who knows we can't get it right. Who has revealed in his word that we can't get it right. Says, trust me. I know how to make it right. I know how to take those things that seem impossible and I know how to seemingly in an impossible way bring good out of what seems hopelessly bad. So according to his plan and purpose, God works all things together for his glory and our good. This is the promise and hope recorded for us in Romans 8.28. Romans 8 28 says and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose this is what's recorded for us in the scripture this is the hope the promise that's given to all who are in Christ how God will work all things together for good is often unknown to us have you have you ever been in a situation, maybe you're in a situation right now, and you're thinking, how in the world is God going to work this together for good? And you think about it, and you lay awake at night, wondering about it, trying to figure it all out, and you have no clue how God's going to do this. And what God says to you is, stop laying awake at night, worrying about it, thinking about it. It's not up to you to work it for good. It's up to you to trust that my promise is true. So that, the how, is often unknown to us. But his promise that he will 
is made clear for us throughout the scripture. Our faith is not in what we can see or in all we're able to understand, but our faith must be in him who has promised, whether we can see or whether we can understand. Like the song we sang this morning, through it all, my eyes are on you. It is well. Can you say that? See, in the natural, trying to comprehend things with this, trying to figure out how all the dots are connect, how it's going to all come together. If you're sitting there trying to figure out, like trying to unravel a puzzle, you can't do that. You'll never be able to do that. I can promise you this. God won't allow you to do that. Because that's not faith. That's you doing something. This was Abraham's problem. He got tired of waiting for the promise and he decided he would do something that he could do and he produced Ishmael. In the fullness of time, through it all, the glory of God will be revealed in all things. That is the truth, church. We can, whether we can see it, whether we can understand it, we can truly say it is well. Because God is sovereign. He is ruling and reigning over all things. Amen? Now let's go to, go, let's go to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 21. I'm going to read, let's read together the first 12 verses. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 12. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham's son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. She just kind of sounds like a scornful old lady if you just left it right there, right? She just sounds like just a scornful old woman. That's why we can't leave it right there. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. Okay, so 
That last verse, verse 12 actually, is where I wanted to stop there. Listen, whatever Sarah has said, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Now hold your place there in Genesis and let's go over to Galatians chapter 4. And we'll let Paul's letter to the Galatians in the New Testament be our commentary that will give us the understanding of what this is all about. So we could just look at this as, well, it's just the historical account of Abraham and his children and his family. It's just what happened. You know, God's given us a historical account. Yes, he has, but he's given us much more than just a historical account. Galatians chapter 4, let's begin in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. That's Hagar, the bondwoman, and Sarah, the free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman, that's Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman, that's Isaac, through promise. Which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was... Are children of promise. I want you to pay attention to verse 28. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So who's Paul talking to there? He's writing to the church in Galatia, and he's, he calls them what? Brethren. Now we brethren. So this letter wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. Are we brethren? If you are in Christ... Does that term brethren apply to you? Yes. So brethren, who are you? As Isaac was, you are children of promise. So we see Paul relates Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac, the bondwoman and the free woman. He relates this to the present situation that the church was in. And it still relates to us today because we can be in bondage or we can be free. And depending on which Jerusalem you're looking to, which mountain you're, you're associated with, you're either going to be in bondage or you're going to be free. Depending on which sun you're associated with, you're either going to be in bondage or you're going to be free. Paul says to the church, brethren, we are, like Isaac, children of promise. Because we were not born of the bondwoman, we were born of the free woman. It's interesting when Adam, remember when we, we looked at Adam and Eve and we said Adam is a type of Christ. We see this clearly revealed in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul relates Adam and Christ as types and shadows. 
in type and shadow. And, and if Adam is a type of Christ, we see that Eve is a type of the church. And when Eve, when Adam called Eve, Eve, she was called Eve because she was, the Bible says, the mother of all living. Paul in Galatians says that the Jerusalem above, and we see this in the book of Revelation one day, um, you know, is, is a real city going to drop out of heaven? Or, or how are we to understand this? The city is not really a city. The city is a people. Jesus isn't going to marry a city. He's going to marry a people in the book of Revelation. In the, in, in the last books there in chapter 19 and in chapter 21 and 22, when we see the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem coming down of heaven, the angel says to John, I'll show you the bride of the Lamb. It's talking about a people. This is what Paul is talking about. The Jerusalem above, this is the church. The church is the mother of us all. She is the mother of all living. How do, how do we go from death to life? This is why we can't say I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's like saying to your best friend, hey, buddy, I love you, but I hate your wife. Mm, how's that relationship going to work out, you know? Uh, you know, if you really love your wife, it's not going to work out very good because you're going to tell him, look, uh, me and my wife are one. Uh, if, if you love me, you better love my wife. This is what Jesus says about his church. Don't tell me you love me and hate my bride because me and my bride are one. We're one flesh. If you love me, you've got to love my bride. That's why it doesn't fly when people say, I love, I love Jesus, but I just hate the church. No, impossible. You don't understand what the church is. You don't understand who the church is. The church is not who the Bible clearly portrays it to be. The church is a figment of your imagination. It's something you've created or the culture's created in its imagination. But it's not the church as Jesus describes it, as the scripture describes it. And so Paul is taking Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac, and he's relating them to the covenants. He's relating them to the reality of who we are. We're either children of the bondwoman or we're children of the free woman. We're either, we're either of the flesh or we're of the spirit. We're either in death or we're in life. And so the rejection of Ishmael is the rejection of the first for the second. It's the rejection of the natural for the spiritual. It's a rejection of the work of the flesh for the work of the spirit. The casting out of the bondwoman and her child is a picture of casting off the carnal nature and the works of the flesh. We are called to put off the old man and the works of the flesh and to put on the new man and walk in the life of the Spirit. That's what the Bible commands us to do. So Romans 6, 6, Paul says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Brethren, we are like Isaac, children of promise. We are children of the free woman. Colossians 3, verses 8 through 11 but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Whose image have you been created in? Specifically, whose image have you been born again into the image of Christ. 
you have become a new creation in Christ. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But Christ, hear this, Christ is all and in all. God only sees two types of people on planet earth, period. Those in Christ and those outside of Christ. Your ethnicity makes no difference. Your color makes no difference. Your social status makes no difference. Your nation of origin makes absolutely no difference. God only knows you if you are in Christ. And all of those other distinguishing factors go away in Christ. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. Who says that? That's what the Bible says. So I'm going to go with the Bible, okay? I don't know about you, but I'm going to trust what the Scripture says because that's what the Scripture says. So through faith in Christ, we put off the old man that's been born according to the flesh, and we put on the new man that's born again according to the Spirit. We're born of the flesh in bondage to the carnal nature in sin and death, and by God's grace... We are born again of the Spirit and made free by the Spirit of life in Christ. Read Romans 6, 7, and 8. This is what Paul deals with this in detail in his letter to the Romans in those chapters. So we're justified by faith in the life and righteousness of another. You hear that? We're not justified in our own life, in our own righteousness, because we have none. We're justified by faith in the life and righteousness of another. And that other is Christ. We are made sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ and heirs according to the promise. What Ishmael represented had to be cast out. Now see, if you read that just from a natural perspective... Abraham, I mean, Sarah sounds like a bitter, scornful old woman, and God seems a little unfair to cast out Hagar and Ishmael just because Ishmael scoffed at Isaac. Is that not true? Just a natural reading of that, you're going to think, man, you know, and this is what people do all the time. And they'll say things like this. That's not the kind of God that I want to serve. Or they'll say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, but now we have another God. Really? No. We don't have one God of the Old Testament and another God of the New Testament. We don't have a grumpy old father in the Old Testament and a, and a, a loving, uh, enabling son who lets you do whatever you want in the New Testament. Everything goes in the New Testament, but God's grumpy in the Old Testament. Grumpy father in the Old, son who lets you do whatever you want in the New. No. That's not the message of the Bible. We have one God in old and new, a consistent message from the beginning to the end. That message transcends from Old Testament to New Testament. It's the same message. It's never been a different message. It has been the same message from the beginning. It's always the same message. And that message is Christ. And so we see this, that God cast out Ishmael and he cast out Hagar. Why does he do this? He had to cast them out because Ishmael was a product of what Abraham could do himself. He was the work of the flesh that had to give way to the work of the spirit in the promise of God. 
It's the same with us. How is God gonna relate to us? Well, the Bible says God will not relate to us in the flesh and he no longer knows us according to the flesh. First, second Corinthians four, six, I mean 5.16. He knows us no longer according to the flesh. So how does he relate to us? Only by the spirit. So what has to happen with my flesh? This is what Ishmael is a picture of. That which is of the flesh has got to be cast out. It's got to go away. God does not even recognize it anymore. He doesn't acknowledge it anymore. We see this when we get to Genesis chapter 22. God says to Abraham, take your, he doesn't say take your second born son. He says take your only son. God no longer even acknowledges Ishmael's existence. Because why? Because, not because God is mean, not because God is unfair. Because God has a plan and a purpose and his plan and his purpose will be accomplished through Isaac and the seed who is Christ that will ultimately come, not from Ishmael, but from Isaac. So God's focused on his plan and his purpose. This is why the work of the flesh has got to give way to the work of the spirit according to the promise of God. So the children of promise are not natural according to the flesh, but they are spiritual and born according to the spirit of God. This is why we're no longer to be conformed to the world. We are not to be, we're not of the world, though we're in the world, right? Jesus said, they're in the world, Father, but they're not of the world. Paul writes in Romans 12, be no longer conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why do we need to be transformed? Because now we have the mind of Christ. So what do we need to do? We need to, we need to have our old mind now conformed to the mind of Christ that's in us. We have the memory of the old man. We now need to renew our mind to the reality of the new man. So the Bible really is only about two things. It's about what is to come in Christ and what has come in Christ. The old man, the mind of the old man is focused on what was before Christ. We have to renew that to the reality of what has now come in Christ. So Christian, who are you? You're a child of promise, the Bible says. Whose mind is your mind to be conformed to? Whose life is your life to be conformed to? Christ. How are you going to do that? There needs to be a transformation take place. The Bible says that's going to happen through the renewing of your mind. So we're not of the world. We are now of Christ. We're in the world, but we're no longer of the world. Ishmael represented the first, or we could say the natural. Isaac represented the second, or the spiritual. In 1 Corinthians 15, 46, Paul says the natural is first and then the spiritual. And if you read the Bible, you'll see this pattern throughout the scripture where God rejects the first and he accepts the second. You see it with Ishmael and Isaac. You see it with Esau and Jacob. You see it throughout the scripture. Now here again, that's not a formula for us to say, well, you know, uh, well, that was my first offer. Let's see, the Bible, see, God always rejects the first and accepts the second. So I'm going to reject this because it's my first offer. And the pattern, of, no, that's not, that's not the point. 
The point of the Bible is not for us to apply these principles and these types and shadows to the natural carnal aspects of our life. Adam was the first man and he was rejected. Why? Because God had a second man that he was going to bring forth. Who is the second man? 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is the second man. He is the second humanity. We could, we could understand it better like that perhaps. So when God created Adam and put him in the garden, God didn't, God wasn't going, boy, I hope this works out. The Trinity wasn't going, man, guys, I, I really hope Adam, I, I hope it works. Oh man, he went for the tree. I was hoping he wouldn't do that. Now what are we going to do? Anybody got a plan here? Jesus goes, yes, Father, I will go and die for them. Well, son, no. When God put Adam on earth, when he created him and breathed life into him, God knew that he would reject the first man because the second man was the man that was to come. The second man who is Christ was eternally, he was the, the one who could only ever fulfill the righteousness that the father demanded you say well then why did God create the first man then uh, that's how you and I got here that's actually how Jesus was incarnated and came the first time so what I want you to see this goes back to chapter 20 God is sovereign he, he's always had a plan God's not a fireman up and he's not the best fireman that ever lived going behind human beings putting out fires that we create he's not reacting to us he doesn't exist for us we exist for him and so he cast out Ishmael because he knew there had to be a rejection of the first for the second he let Adam fall because he knew the second man was coming and when did he come? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That's what Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 4. So Ishmael wasn't rejected because of what he did. Listen, he was rejected because of who he was not. Did you catch that? Ishmael was not rejected because of what he did. He wasn't rejected because he scorned Isaac. He was rejected because of who he was not. We are accepted by the Father because of who we are in Christ. We are no longer of the first man, Adam, if we are born again of the second man who is Christ. So as Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, what we just looked at, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. We're born in sin and death. We're not rejected by God because of what we do. We're rejected by God because of who we are not. We are not the righteousness of God in Christ. Until when? Until we're born again. So listen, the offense and the rejection of the cross is God saying this. So here's what God says in the rejection and the offense of the cross. What you have, I don't want. When we come to God in ourselves and we say, here I am God, God says, what you have, I don't want. That is the rejection of the cross. But here's the grace of the cross. The grace of the cross is God saying, what I want, I will give you. 
And that's what happens when we're born again. What God wants, we don't have. And when we come to God in and of ourselves, God says, what you have, I don't want. It doesn't matter how moral we are. It doesn't matter how good we are. It doesn't matter how many good works we do, how sweet we are, how precious we are, how cute and cuddly we are. When we come to God, apart from Christ, God says, what you have, I don't want. But the grace of God says, what I want, I will give you. And what God wants is his son. And what God has done is given us his son because that's all God has ever wanted was a manifestation and a multiplication and a filling of all things. He wants his son, the image of his son, to fill those things. So we can only receive what God will give us through the death and the casting out of our old man so that we can now gain the life of the new man who is Christ. Everything we are naturally is not Christ. And that is what must be cast out and put behind through the work of the cross wrought in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. I like that word wrought. Who knows what wrought iron is? Okay, now, now a lot of wrought iron today is really not wrought iron. Uh, that word wrought means hammered and shaped. It's a picture of a blacksmith taking a piece of iron and hammering it and shaping it. This is what God is doing by the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in us. The work of God in us is wrought by the Holy Spirit. It is God molding and shaping and hammering us. We must turn our heart toward knowing Christ and ask the Father to reveal Christ and make him known in us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, to make Christ known. The Bible is the story of the first and the second. There is no third. Your salvation is the experience of the journey from the first to the second. You are immediately brought out of the one and into the other. Listen, the moment you're born again, you are made holy and righteous in the sight of the Father. The experience of your salvation is the work God's doing in you to bring you into a comprehension and an understanding of where the cross has brought you. The cross has brought you out of the old and into the new. And the work that's being wrought in you right now by the Holy Spirit is, is bringing you to an understanding and a comprehension of where the cross has brought you to, where you live and where you abide right now. If you're born again, you abide, you live in Christ. The problem is we don't fully comprehend that. Therefore, it's not fully manifest in our life. And so God doesn't want us just to comprehend it in our mind. God wants our lives to manifest the reality of Christ in us. So remember I said the Bible's not a bunch of stories to teach us how to love better and behave better, but does God want us to love better and behave better? Absolutely he does. Does God want our life to, to manifest the life of Jesus? Yes. Does that mean that God wants us to love the way Jesus loved? Absolutely. Does, 
Does that mean that God wants us to worship the way Jesus worshiped? Yes, absolutely. Does that mean that God wants us to have compassion and patience the way Jesus had compassion and patience? Yes, absolutely. Does it mean that God wants us to have the courage and the boldness to stand up against sin and deception and error the way Jesus did? And if that means taking a whip to the money changers, we'll take a whip to the money changers. If it means preaching a gospel that is culturally unpopular, then we're gonna preach a gospel that's culturally unpopular or live a gospel that's culturally unpopular. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. How do we know? Because they crucified him. His message was so unpopular with the culture of his day that the culture killed him. If Christ is in you, and if Christ is to be manifest through you the way God the Father wants him to be, Guess what? The culture could want your demise too. It's happening all over the world. There are brothers and sisters all over the world right now, particularly in the Middle East, who are losing their lives because there is enough Jesus in them that the culture says, you gotta go. We haven't come to that here, but yet they silence us in other ways here. And we bow to peer pressure and we bow to political correctness and we bow to just the message that the culture sends because we don't really understand the truth that the scripture is conveying to us. So the experience of salvation is your life, your lifelong journey of faith that's bringing you to a deeper revelation and comprehension of all the cross has left behind and all the cross has brought you into in Christ it is the discovery of where you now find your life it's the discovery of where you now abide it is the proclamation of what is to come and what has come in Christ it's your discovery of that so Christ must become an experiential reality in our heart not only information in our head. Do you get that? He's got to become an experiential reality in our heart, not only information in your head. You know how you're going to find out whether you've got just information, a lot of information about Christ in your head versus an experiential reality in your heart? I'll tell you how. Life. Life is going to reveal that. Because when the hammer comes down and God begins to mold you and shape you, you're going to find out real fast whether you have just a bunch of good information about Jesus locked away in your brain or whether something real has transpired in your heart. And the more the wind and the rain and the storm and the hammer of life beats against you, the more you will become conformed to the image of the Son. If you've just got a bunch of Jesus up here in your mind, you're going to be like that seed that fell and when the cares of life came, it withered away. But if your good soil and the seed of God's word has been planted deep in your heart, all the storms of life are going to do are make you stronger. And God, in doing his work, will conform you more and more and more to the image of his son. Have you ever bought 
Have you ever bought plants from a nursery greenhouse? <laughs> Springtime and you're getting ready to plant your garden, your flower beds, and you go and you buy all these plants from your nursery greenhouse. And you bring them home and you set them all outside. And it's a windy spring day. And the next day you go out and all your plants are withered and wilted and knocked over and look, they look like they're half dead. You know why they're like that? Because they existed all of their life in the sheltered greenhouse environment. And if you read the instructions real closely, it will tell you don't put these things out in the wind and the elements right away. Give them an adjustment period. But you look at plants that just volunteer and grow up and spring up and the wind and the rain comes and it may shape them, it may affect them in some way but you realize that the reality of the elements that exist in our created order work to make us stronger and that's what God wants and is doing. It's what he wants to do and it's what he is doing in your life. This is why Paul says, our light affliction. We glory also in tribulation. Nobody wants affliction and nobody wants tribulation. But Christ in you gives you hope that in spite of the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever may come, I know God is sovereign and God is working out his plan and his purpose in and through all things for his glory and for my good. Amen? Let's all stand. So sometimes we just need to stop trying to make sense of everything in our head and, and realize what we need is, is not an ability to understand everything I need to know that Christ is my hope. I need to know that God has done something real in my life. I need to be able to trust Christ even when things don't make sense. Even when I'm struggling to find good in whatever situation or circumstance there might be. This is why the gospel is such good news because Jesus made a way for us to come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. And we are never without need of him. And we can come to the Father and we can ask the Father to do a transforming work in our heart and in our mind and so reveal Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, we confess our need and we confess that you are the only one who is able to meet that need. Lord, do a work in us by the power of your spirit. Hammer out and shape us into the very image of your son. We pray this, Lord, in fear, knowing that, Lord, your work in us is not always easy. It's often difficult. But we pray in faith knowing that your work in us is always good and it's always glorious. And we want your glory, God. 
So we ask, let your will be done in us, even as it is in heaven. Let the image of your Son be formed and shaped and manifest in our hearts, in our lives. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.